Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 through chapter 9, verse 8, verses 18 through 20. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Burkett notes, Observe here a person resolving to follow Christ, a good resolution if made deliberately and not rashly, nor for sinister ends and secular advantages, which it is to be feared was the case here by the answer which our Savior gives. For he says, Foxes have holes, etc., That is, my condition in this world is very poor, worse than the birds of the air, for they have their fixed nests, or the beasts of the earth, for they have their dens and holes, but I have no fixed habitation. Note 1, that many persons take up rash and sudden resolutions to follow Christ before they have well considered what it will cost them, what they are like to lose by being his disciples. 2, that such men may find themselves miserably mistaken, who expect to gain anything by following Christ but their soul's salvation. Note 3, the title given to Christ. He is styled here and frequently elsewhere, the Son of Man. 1. To show the truth of his humanity. The Son of Man must be man. 2. To show the depth of his abasement. Christ humbled, yea, emptied himself, when being the Son of God, he submitted to be made man. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Verses 21 and 22. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Burkett notes, We must not suppose by this prohibition that Christ disallows or disapproves of any civil office from one person to another, much less of a child to a parent, either living or dying. But he lets us know, one, that no office of love and service to man must be preferred before our duty to God, unto whom we owe our first obedience. Two, that lawful and decent offices become sinful when they hinder greater duties. Three, that such as are called to the work and employment of the ministry must mind that alone and leave inferior duties to inferior persons. As if our Savior had said, Others will serve well enough to bury the dead, but thou that art a consecrated person must do that unto which thou art consecrated and set apart. Under the law, the priest might not come near a dead corpse, nor meddle with the interment of their own parents, unto which our Savior probably alludes. Verses 23 through 27. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Burkett notes, Observe here, one, Christ and his disciples no sooner put forth to sea, but dangers are attended, and difficulties do accompany them. A tempest arose, and the ship was covered with waves. Learn thence 
that the presence of Christ itself doth not exempt his disciples and followers from trouble and danger. Here is a great tempest about the disciples' ears, though Christ was in their company. Observe, too, the posture our Savior was in when this tempest arose. He, being weary on the land, was fallen asleep in the ship. Our blessed Redeemer hereby showed himself to be truly and really man. As he took upon him our human nature, so he subjected himself to our human infirmities. Observe 3. The disciples' application made to him. They awoke him with a sad outcry. Lord, save us, we perish. Here was faith mixed with human frailty. They had faith in his power that he could save them, but being asleep, they concluded he must awake before he could save them. Whereas though his human nature was asleep, yet his divine nature neither slumbered nor slept. Learn hence that the prevalency of fear in a time of great and eminent danger, though it may argue weakness of faith, yet it is no evidence of want of faith. In the midst of the disciples' fears, they believed Christ's power. Observe 4, a double rebuke given by our Savior. 1. To the winds and sea. Next, to the fears of his disciples. He rebukes the wind and the seas, and instantly they are calm. When the sea was as furious as a madman, Christ by his divine power calms it. Learn hence that the most raging winds and outrageous seas cannot stand before the rebukes of Christ. If once he rebukes them, their rage is down. God lays a law upon the most lawless creatures, even when they seem to act most lawlessly. 2. Christ rebukes his disciples' fears. Why are ye fearful? No sooner was the storm up, but their fears were up, and they were as much overset with their boisterous passions as the vessel was with the tempestuous winds. And accordingly, Christ rebukes the tempest within, and then the tempest without. First he calms their hearts, and then the seas. From this instance we see that great faith in the habit may appear little in the act and exercise. The disciples' faith in forsaking all and following Christ was great faith. But in this present act, their faith was weak through the prevalency of their fear. Note lastly that the disciples' faith was lessened by their fear. Fear is generated by unbelief, and unbelief strengthened by fear. As in things natural, there is a circular generation. Vapors beget showers, and showers vapors. So it is in things moral. Nothing can cure us of fear till God cures us of unbelief. Christ, therefore, takes an effectual method to rid the disciples of their fears by rebuking their unbelief. Verse 28. And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there he met two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass that way. Burkett notes, We read of few, if any, in the Old Testament that were possessed with evil spirits, but of many in the New Testament. Our Savior came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, he suffered Satan to enter some human bodies to show his divine power in casting them out. Note here, 1, that the evil angels by their fall lost their purity, but not their power. 2, that they do no oftener exert their power in doing mischief to the bodies and lives of men is from the restraining power of God. Devils cannot do all the mischief they would, and they shall not do all they can. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? 
Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Burkett notes, Observe the devil's new Christ to be the Son of God, and that he came into the world to be a Savior, but not their Savior. And therefore they cry out, What have we to do with thee, or thou with us? Oh, what an uncomfortable faith is this, to believe that Christ is a Savior, and at the same time to know he is none of our Savior. But what is their outcry against Christ? This, art thou come to torment us before the time? Learn, one, that there are tortures applied to the spiritual nature of evil angels. The fire of hell is conceived to be partly material and partly spiritual, partly material to work upon the bodies of evil men, and partly spiritual to work upon the souls of men and the spirits of evil angels. Learn, too, that though the devils be now as full of discontent as they can be, yet they are not so full of torment as they shall be. Their speech here intimates that there will be a time when their torment shall be increased, when they shall have their fill of torment. Therefore, they pray, increase not our torment before the appointed time of their increase. Verses 30 and 31. And there was a good ways off from them a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, a notable evidence of Satan's limited power, that a whole legion of devils had not the power to destroy one man, nor were able to hurt the meanest creature without permission. Observe, two, the devil's acknowledgement of their own impotency and Christ's power. Their asking leave of Christ to go into the swine shows that they could not go of themselves. Learn hence, one, the restlessness of Satan's malice. He will hurt the swine rather than not hurt at all. Two, that though Satan's malice be infinite, yet his power is limited and bounded. He cannot do all the mischief he would, so he shall not do all he can. Verse 32. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. Burkett notes, Although Christ seldom wrought any destructive miracle, and although he certainly foresaw that the swine would perish in the waters, yet that the people might see how great the power and malice of the devil would be, if not restrained by Christ, he permitted him to enter into the swine. Christ said unto them, Go! And how glad was Satan of this permission to enter into the swine! in order to their destruction. Let it teach us our duty by prayer to commit ourselves and all that we have, morning and evening, into the hands of God's care, all that we have in the house and all that we have in the field, that it may be preserved from the power and malice of evil spirit. Verses 33 and 34. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen of the possessed of the devils. And behold, The whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Burkett notes, Observe one, what a contrary effect this miracle which Christ wrought had upon these people. Instead of believing on him for his miraculous cure of the possessed, the loss of their swine enrages them and makes them desire Christ to depart from them. Temporal losses are so great in worldly men's estimation that spiritual advantages are nothing esteemed. 
Carnal hearts prefer their swine before their Savior, and had rather lose Christ's presence than their worldly prophets. Observe, too, how unanimous and importune these Gardarans were to get rid of Christ. The whole city came out, and not only willing to his departure, but they beseeched him to depart out of their coasts. Learn hence that deplorably sad is the condition of such from whom Christ departs. More deplorably sad their state who say unto Christ, Depart. But most deplorably sad is the case of them that entreat and beseech Christ to depart from them. Thus did these Gardarans, and accordingly Christ took ship and departed from them, and we never read of his return unto them. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he entered into a ship, and passed over, and came into his own city. Burkett notes, In the last verse of the foregoing chapter, the Gardarians, with one consent, desire Christ to depart out of their coasts. Here we find our Savior, according to their desire, departing from them into his own city, which was Capernaum. For Bethlehem brought him forth, Nazareth brought him up, and Capernaum was his dwelling place. From their desire of Christ's departure and from Christ's departing according to their desire, we learn that the blessed Jesus will not long trouble that people with his presence who are weary of his company and desirous of his departure. Verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Burkett notes, Observe one, the patient, one sick of the palsy, which being a resolution of the nerves, weakens the joints, and confines the person to his better couch. As a demonstration of Christ's divine power, he was pleased to single out some incurable disease, as the world accounts them, to work a cure upon, as the leprosy and the palsy. 2. The Physician, Jesus Christ He alone is that wise, faithful, and compassionate physician that can and doth cure both soul and body. Observe 3. The moving and impulsive cause of his cure, Jesus seeing their faith. That is, their firm persuasion that he was clothed with a divine power and able to help. Together with their confidence in his goodness, that he was as willing as he was able. And no sooner did they exercise their faith in believing but Christ did exert his divine power in healing. It was not the sick man's faith, but the faith of his friends. The faith of others may prevail for obtaining corporal benefits and temporal blessings for us. Thus the centurion's faith healed his servant, and Jairus' faith raised his daughter. Observe 4. The miraculous efficacy and power of faith. It obtained not only what was desired, but more than was expected. They desired only the healing of the body, but Jesus, seeing their faith, heals body and soul too, saying, Be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. Intimating that diseases proceed from sin, because Christ first speaks of forgiving them. Yet it is conceived that Christ rather speaketh here of the temporal remission of the punishment than of the eternal, because that depends on our own faith and not others. Verse 3. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Burkett notes, See here how the best of men are sometimes charged with saying and doing the worst of things. To do well and bear ill was the portion of Christ himself, and may be the portion of the holiest of those that belong to Christ. 
the innocent Jesus was accused of blasphemy, of sorcery, and of the blackest crimes. Innocency itself can protect no man from slander and false accusations. Verses 4 through 6. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. Burkett notes, Our Savior here gives the Pharisees a twofold demonstration of his Godhead. First, by letting them understand that he knew their thoughts. For to search the hearts and to know the thoughts of the children of men is not in the power of angels or men, but the prerogative of God only. Secondly, by assuming to himself a power to forgive sins, the Son of Man hath power to forgive sins. Our Savior here, by forgiving sins in his own name and by his own authority, doth give the world an undeniable proof and convincing evidence of his Godhead. For who can forgive sins but God only? Verses 7 and 8. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Burkett notes. Note here, the multitude marveled, but not believed. They admired our Savior for an extraordinary man, but they did not believe in him as the Son of God. They praised God for giving such power to heal the bodies of men, but not for sending his Son into the world to save the souls of men. Learn, hence, that the sight of Christ's miracles is not sufficient to work faith in the soul, but requires the concurring operation of the Holy Spirit. The one may make us marvel, the other must make us believe.